You know, this summer we've been looking into the book of James and seeking wisdom, but wisdom for things that are really practical in our lives, not just wisdom to have wisdom, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but to say, God, how do I how can I take some of these things and put them into action and actually apply them to my life? James 1.5 says that if we need wisdom, if we seek it, that we can ask for God, God to give it to us and that he gives it to us generously. So this morning, we're just taking another week to ask God, God, would you graciously give us wisdom for our lives? So today, James poses a question that might come out of the teenager handbook of questions to ask your mom or dad. And this question is, is one of those ones that teenagers ask whenever they hear someone saying one thing, but then doing something completely different. And the question is this, why doesn't what you say match what you do? Have you ever gotten that one from your teenager? Or if you're here and you're a teenager, maybe you've thought about that question. Maybe you've actually verbalized it. Maybe at other times you've wisely held back and not verbalized that. But yesterday my wife and I were laughing about all the different ways that we do this, even within our own family. We tell our kids all the time, you are responsible for your own stuff, okay? Please take care of your stuff. Please keep your room generally cleaned up. It's your stuff. You keep it in order. And then pretty consistently, our bedroom is the messiest one in the house. Now, my wife would tell you that's because our bedroom kind of becomes the catch-all for the entire family's laundry and for everything that's moving in or out of the upstairs of the bedroom area. And she's right about that. But Ours is always the messiest bedroom for that reason. How about this one? We say to our kids, drive the speed limit. Hey, you got to come to a complete stop, okay? Hey, you got to make sure you look both directions. You didn't even check back that other direction before you pulled out. And then I don't always do that myself. (laughs) And my kids love to call me out on that. Um, Hey, Dad, that wasn't one of those optional stop signs. You say because it has the white ring around it that it's optional. That's, I learned that's not really true. So... Another thing that we say to our older kids who seem to think that sleep is unnecessary in life, you know, it's late and we're heading to bed and we want to go to bed. And generally in our house, we don't like to let teenagers be awake after us, uh, especially on weeknights. We're just like, hey, we're going to bed. Let's all go to bed. It's like, please don't get sucked into that show. Please don't get sucked into that movie. Let's just go to bed. Sleep is a good thing. We all need to sleep. And then usually about once a week, when my wife and I are exhausted from life, we find ourselves sprawled out and crashed on the couch, getting sucked into some movie we've already seen three times, uh, knowing that the next morning we're going to be saying, why didn't you just go to bed and get that extra hour or two of sleep? Why didn't you do it? So this is the question. The question that our kids have for us, why doesn't what you say match what you do? is, uh, or, or maybe you're here and you're a parent and you've been waiting for the opportunity to use the line that your parents used with you when you were a kid, which is what? Do as I say, not as I do. And you know how great that felt for you as a kid when your parents would say that. So you've been waiting like 20 plus years for you to have the opportunity to regurgitate that back to your own kids because it feels just as good for them, I'm sure, as it did when it was said to you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a study that was released by the American Psychological Association that said when our beliefs and our actions are misaligned, when what we believe does not align with how we behave or how we live our lives, that we are living in an unhealthy state of mind and that it actually causes us emotional trauma. To understand that when what we believe does not align with the way that we live, We're living in an unhealthy place in our mind, and it actually causes us 
trauma in life because we're living out something that's different than what we hold as a belief or a value. James, who was uh, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, this letter that we've been talking, working our way through this month, says that the same is true when it comes to our faith. And if you uh, have your Bibles with you and you want to turn to James chapter 2, we're starting with verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you can open up your outline. All of it will be in there. Probably would be really helpful to follow along today if uh, you can look at God's word, because we're covering 12 verses today, uh, verses 14 through verse 26. But James says this same thing is true when it comes to our faith. He says this in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Let's read that verse together. I think it'll sink in a little bit more. Ready? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Wow, this is a big question James asks at the end of this verse. Can such a faith save them? It's kind of a startling question and and an important one. What kind of faith really saves us? This is what James is addressing. What kind of faith did Jesus give his life for us to experience this side of heaven? And what kind of faith reassures us that we're truly a part of God's forever family and that we have the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven because of that? What kind of faith did Jesus die for? What for us to have? What kind of faith did Jesus die for us so that we'd be able to spend eternity with him? These are big questions. And today James gives us godly wisdom by reinforcing that a saving faith, a saving faith lives out what we really believe. A saving faith is one that's lived out in our lives. Now I want you to know how impressed I am with our church family. And I don't say this in any way to be patronizing. Let me tell you why I'm so impressed with all of you. For the past four weeks, as we've worked through the book of James, we have hit head-on some really tough conversations. And uh, James, uh, is, this is not an easy book. I mean, he hits things head-on. And they've been tough things that we've addressed. And we have heard one thing consistently from our, all of you as a church family, and that's keep bringing the hard stuff. Keep challenging us to apply God's word to our life, keep challenging us to live out this godly wisdom that James says will, bring it, will make a difference in your life. It'll bring transformation in your life and it'll bring transformation to the world that you live in. And I love that about this church family. I love that we're at a place where we're saying, hey God, we want to go after it with you. We don't want to just play around. We want to really seek you and pursue you and the transformation you want to do in our life. It's great to be able to speak God's truth to each other in love but why? What's the goal? What's the goal of all of it? The goal is this, because we want to help each other become more like Jesus, right? We want to grow together so we can become more like Christ, because when we do that, we get to live well, and we get to love each other well. We learn how to love like Christ did. We learn how to live like he did, and that makes such a difference in our world, and we know we can't do that on our own apart from him. So today's no exception. Today we're looking at another lightweight piece of wisdom that James is addressing head on. And this is what we're going to zoom in on today. James is asking this question, does your life demonstrate what you believe? Does your life demonstrate what you believe? You know, whether you know it or not, you demonstrate what you believe in your life every day. You do. For example, when you exceed the speed limit, you're demonstrating that you believe that you are a great driver and that speed limits are more of a suggestion, not really a rule. 
Now, unfortunately, uh, we have many police officers who are a part of our church family, and they assured me after first service that they have a different perspective than you, no matter how great a driver you may think that you are. You know, when you buy something online, you believe that the company is going to send you what you paid for, and that if not, you're going to have some way of getting your money back, but you demonstrate what you believe by making that purchase. The people who went on the daybreak short-term trip to Ecuador are going to arrive home later this afternoon. They'll be pulling in around 5 or 6 o'clock from their 10 days in Ecuador. They demonstrated their beliefs in many ways by going on that trip. They demonstrated that they believed that God would provide for the cost of their trip even before they went. They showed their trust that God would work in them and through them, and none of them knew exactly what they would experience on this trip, but they believed God, and then they put their faith into action and made a decision to go. And I'm so excited to hear what God did in and through them. I always get excited, even if I'm not a part of the team. About every other year, I get to be a part of a team. But I get so excited to hear how God's at work in them and what happened as they surrendered to God. It's amazing. So James poses this question when it comes to your faith. Do you live what you believe? Do you live out what you believe? And if not, James says this. Basically, he says, what good is it? I mean, what good is it? If you're not living out what you believe, what good is your faith? It's all just a waste of time and effort because it's not a faith that's going to save you or transform you or bring transformation in the life of anyone else. And this is actually a good question for all of us to think about. Whether you're here today and you're a Christian or you're you're kind of just interested in Christianity, whether you're a Christ follower or you're thinking about being a Christ follower, I assume if, if you're in one of those two camps, probably if you're here today, But no matter where you are, this is a great question for you. What does your life really say about what you believe? What does your life reflect about who you are and what you believe? Let me give you an example. Uh, Here's a chair. Hey, it looks a lot like the ones you all are sitting on this morning. Uh, Pretty sturdy chairs. Uh, They've held up for almost 13 years now since we've been in this building. Um, As a matter of fact, some of you, when you sit on them, you have the privilege of hearing that big pop Uh, that happens, and that's embarrassing, but that happens because we lift these chairs up and clear them out every week, and they get stacked so that ministry can happen in this room, but then when they get back down on the floor, it takes sometimes the first person to put weight on them before they pop back into their secure uh, position, so don't be embarrassed. It happens to all of us when you sit down at daybreak and get to hear that loud pop, but if I asked you this morning, do you think that the chair that you're sitting on is strong enough to hold you How many of you would say, yeah, I think I could stand on my chair and I'd feel secure about it holding me? Okay. How could you prove to me that you believe that the chair that you're sitting on is strong enough to hold you if you stood on it? How could you prove it? Stand on it, right? Right. Uh, Alexis, I saw you raise your hand. Would you come up here for a minute? Alexis Petridis, everybody. Hey, Alexis, um, you had a birthday this week or last week, didn't you? Last week? Yeah, come on up. Um, and you, were those WNBA players you got to hang out with? Yeah. yeah. We didn't get to talk about this, but I saw on Facebook, Alexis was hanging out with some of the WNBA players. She got pictures with about a dozen of them. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Good, good birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. So here's Alexis. Alexis raised her hand that she believed that the chair was strong enough to hold her. Actually, I'm kind of pulling a bait and switch on her because she believed that her chair was strong enough to hold her. And now I brought her up here. Uh, but Alexis, um, are you ready to demonstrate your, your faith and your belief that this chair will hold you? Okay. All right. We're not going to have any injuries this morning, so I want to be here to help you if, okay. as you get up on, all right? All right. Go ahead. Step up there. All right. She's on. Alexis, everybody, demonstrating her faith and trust. 
Thank you, Alexis. Alexis believes in her chair. She has faith in the chair. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. We believe that Alexis believed in that chair, not because Alexis thought that the chair would hold her, not because Alexis felt good that the chair would hold her. We believe that Alexis believed that the chair would hold her. Why? Because she stood on the chair. Because she took the step of faith and stood on the chair and trusted herself to the chair. James is asking you, what about your life demonstrates your faith? What about your life demonstrates that you've trusted God with your life? Has your faith grown to a place where you're experiencing Jesus' life-changing power and it's demonstrated because you take steps of faith. You step onto chairs. You step, you step into the arms of God. And you say, God, not me. I'm trusting this with you. How many of you have come to church for years and said, yeah, I believe God can heal people, but you've never trusted him for healing in your life? How many of you believe that God is a God who would do things in the lives of other people, but you've never really trusted him to do some of those things in your life. If that's true, just kind of say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, many of us. We believe that God is powerful enough. We have faith in him to do miracles in somebody else's life, but we really struggle sometimes with saying, God, can I trust you to do this thing in me? James goes on to give some examples of faith that won't change your life in this passage. Faith that won't change your life, won't change anybody else's life, and won't have a dent, make a dent in the world. James makes some clear distinctions to help us understand what true faith looks like as a Christ follower. So let's look at a couple of these in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And you can underline verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So according to James, James is saying, hey, you can have good morals, you can have good values, you can even be vocal about those morals without ever really understanding what it means to follow Jesus in those things. I don't know if you've ever done this. I know I have. You see a need, and you're prompted by God's Spirit to act, but you kind of walk away from that need, maybe just giving a blessing, or, hey, I'll pray for you, but you do nothing. You do nothing. James is almost being sarcastic here. He says, you see somebody who's naked and they don't have any food and you actually say, hey, keep warm and well fed and you turn and walk away. James is saying, if we have faith that's not accompanied by action, that faith is not only dead, it's useless. It lacks power. It lacks transformation in your life or in the life of anyone else. Dead faith is knowing about Jesus without acting like we actually know Jesus. Dead faith is knowing about Jesus without acting like we actually know Jesus. That's one of the blanks in your outline today. Uh, there it is. And I, after I wrote this earlier in the week, I shortened it in my mind and I just said it this way, more succinctly. Dead faith is knowing about Jesus but not acting like Jesus. Dead faith is knowing about Jesus, but not acting like Jesus. Dead faith is powerless to change anyone, 
It's not good for anybody. It's actually just another religion. But dead faith feels safer because dead faith can be compartmentalized to be just involved in a part of your life. Dead faith doesn't have to impact your whole life. But dead faith won't change your life and it won't impact anyone else. Now, I want to be careful here for a minute. I want you to know that James is not countering Paul's words to the church in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Because in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, it's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. And it's not by works. It's not by anything that we can do. Because if it were about us, we'd brag about it, right? We would boast about it. And Paul didn't want to make it clear. It's not by your actions that you're saved, or that you're transformed. So we have to be clear, James isn't contradicting Paul here, but he's actually saying, James is saying that our actions are evidence of our faith. Our actions are actually proof of our faith. Our actions show that our faith is alive, that our faith isn't dead. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how our faith is in danger when being right is more important than doing right. When being right is more important than doing right to you, then your faith is in danger. We said the moment that we value knowing, knowing over being or living or doing, our faith is in jeopardy. Because being religious can also be described as the kind of faith that checks boxes. It's doing stuff, but it's still dead because it doesn't flow out of a relationship with Jesus. So the doing doesn't feel loving, and it's certainly not life-changing for you or for anyone else. It's called going through the motions. And how many of you have ever been there? I have. Gone through the motions. Some of you might hear, be here this morning because you're going through the motions. And I want to tell you, I'm glad that you're here, because even being here, God has the opportunity to meet you right where you are and say, that's not what I have for you. I don't have a life of going through the motions. I don't have a life of religion planned for you. I have a life of trans, a transformed person that comes through a relationship with me. That's what I have planned for you. And God can remind you of that even this morning. Faith that's alive looks like, looks like Jesus. It feels like Jesus because it flows from a relationship with Jesus. And this is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, and you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. But when you abide in me, when you stay connected to the vine, you're going to bear fruit in your life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is what James is talking about, that kind of relationship with Jesus. It flows from this consistent contact with the living Christ, us experiencing his love, it flowing to us, and then it flowing through us to others. That's transformational. And when we have this kind of faith, we're able to really begin to live, live and love others well. You know, I guarantee you that that happened through our Ecuador team this week. I guarantee you, no matter what the stories are, I guarantee you that it's going to have this basic theme their faith became alive as they trusted God and began to act on their faith. Because here's the deal when you go on a missions trip. If you've not been on one, if you've been on one, you'll know this. If you've not been on one, you need to experience it. But when you go on a missions trip, you're kind of locked in. I mean, you're sometimes on the other side of the planet, and you can't, like out of fear, say, hey, my tummy doesn't feel so well. I'm going home. Have a good time. No, you're there, and you're all in. And this amazing thing happens on a missions trip because when we're on a missions trip, we're not just doing, doing, doing. 
We're spending time in God's presence together. And from that place, we go out and we do what God leads us to do. And it's this beautiful, beautiful experience. I can guarantee you that they began to love people in the jungles of Ecuador that a week ago they didn't even know existed or they didn't even care about maybe if they were honest the week before because God's love flowed to them and through them to these beautiful, brown-skinned, generally shorter Ecuadorians. And I love going to Ecuador because 5'10 is so tall in Ecuador. I am like a giant in Ecuador. I don't get to experience that stateside so much. A dead faith doesn't change your life. There's also another kind of dead faith that James mentions that won't change your life. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. James is talking a little smack here. (laughs) And James says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. You might want to underline that. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James goes right for shock value here. He says, look, if you have faith, you should see the good changes that God is making in your life. James is actually saying one of the things that Paul said basically earlier. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. James is not pointing to himself as, hey, look at me. Good things are coming from my life. He's saying, when you're connected to the vine, when you're trusting God, when God's love is flowing through you or flowing to you, good fruit is going to come from your life. James is saying, that's what happened in my life. So James is talking smack, but he's really kind of bragging on God. He's saying, look, God came. He's done this work of transformation in me, and now it shows in my life. Like, I'm a different person. And you have to keep in mind that the miracle of all of this is that James is talking about his brother, because he's the brother of Jesus. So he's talking about allowing his brother, as he knew him, to bring through this work of transformation in him, which is just an incredible thought for many of us uh, to even think about. But you have to think about this. James says... He comes back to this idea that a saving faith lives out what we say that we believe. But then James brings up something really interesting. He compares our faith to the demons. He says demons have faith too. Maybe that was surprising to some of you. But what does the Bible tell us about demons? Well, the Bible says that demons believe in God. You will not find a demon who can ever be accused of being an atheist. Demons believe in God. The Bible also tells us that they believe that Jesus is God in Mark chapter 3. They believe in hell in Luke chapter 8. They believe that Jesus is going to be their judge in Mark chapter 5, and the list goes on and on. But the demons believe in God, and according to James, demons don't just believe. They shudder at the thought of God. They're afraid of him. They know they've given a limited power and influence in this time, but they're fearful of God. They know ultimately they're going to have to give account to him, and he's going to be their judge. They know what's coming. They're afraid of his judgment. They're afraid of his might. And they're afraid of his justice. justice, And they're afraid. And James is comparing our belief. James is comparing our faith response to the demons. Now think about this. Coming in today, probably some of you would have thought that you'd receive a better grade on your spiritual report card in the faith category than demons, right? You would have rated yourself higher. But James is saying demons have faith in God and they're afraid of him. Fearful faith is knowing about what Jesus did for you but still fearing how God feels about you because of where you come from, because of what you've done, because of what you're currently doing. Fearful faith is powerless because you wonder, is grace enough for me? 
is grace enough for me? And fearful faith is powerless because you feel unable to respond to God's invitations because you don't think you're worthy or you think you'd have to give up a lifestyle that you want too much to respond to God's invitation. And so you just lay back. And there's a big difference between a life that's motivated by love and a life that's motivated by fear. And if you have a fearful faith, you are missing out on all that God intended for you to have. When your faith is fearful, your deeds tend to be timid. When your faith is fearful, your deeds tend to be timid. And that kind of fearful faith is not willing to risk because failure has too great a consequence. Listen, James stays on this same track, and he wants us to know this, that we have to have a faith that's based on something more than our intellect. It can't just be up here. And that's why I believe that many of us love to come to church and we love to be a part of worship because we want our hearts to engage with God as well. We want our hearts to be moved towards God and we want to experience God's love firsthand. And I think it's amazing for us to get together with other believers so that we can experience God's powerful presence together so that we can lift each other's chins and we can look towards God, get our eyes on Jesus. It's a powerful thing, but we can't stop there. Because James doesn't stop there. He doesn't encourage us to simply stir our hearts for God. He wants more for us. And this is why. I believe it's possible to have your heart stirred in one moment, but feel very far from God in the next moment or the next day. How many of you have experienced that? You've had your mind challenged, you've had your heart stirred, and you walk away from that place or that moment, and within a few moments later, you feel very distant from God. James says a life-changing faith is when we connect our hearts and our minds to our will and we act. You know, that's why we give you time at the end of every service to think about your response to God, to let the applied word of God give you direction for next steps, for obedience in your life, for action in your life, because we know if you don't take that step, if you don't act on what you, what you heard or what you know, if you don't act on what you felt, if you don't respond to God, that there will be no lasting transformation in your life. And this is what God calls us to, because we want your faith to become alive. And life change doesn't happen just because you have new information. We've talked about that in this series. If you came in to get new information about God this morning, that's wonderful. But life change isn't going to happen just because you got new information. Life change doesn't come because we feel good when we leave a worship service. Boy, wasn't that wonderful and the music was so great and I felt like God was there and I was in God's presence. That's wonderful too, but life change doesn't happen just because you felt that or experienced that. Life change happens when we faithfully respond to God's invitation by choosing a new way, by choosing God's way, and we act in obedience. That's when life change happens. Life change happens when we step out in faith and we act in obedience to God. That's when the work of transformation begins in our lives. And so James gives us two quick examples at the end of this passage of people who choose to act, chose to act on their faith. In verse 20, he says this, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. You could underline that whole verse, verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You know, Abraham ended up being one of, I think, five people in scripture who were referred to as a friend of God. He acted on what he knew, on his faith. So I don't know if you know this, but Abraham came from a family of moon worshipers before he turned to God. The religion that he was a part of at the time when God met Abraham um, was, was a, uh, a religion that worshipped the moon. So Abraham, as part of their regular ritualistic worship as moon worshipers, one of the things that they did was they would sacrifice their own children to the moon god. So Abraham, this pagan moon worshiper, discovers God and was made right with God to such a degree that he was called a friend of God. And when Abraham invited, when God invited Abraham to follow him, what did Abraham do? Did he just stand up and renounce the moon god in favor of this other god? Did he hear God's voice and he was so moved emotionally that he said a prayer and then he lived happily ever after? No, that's not what happened. Abraham and his wife had a son that they thought they, would, they were too old to have. And then get this, God asked him to sacrifice the son that he loved. What? God asked him to do something that was common practice in his old religion so that Abraham could, deci- could decide if he trusted God enough. And so that Abraham could decide if he loved God more than even his own son, this promised son. Crazy stuff. But don't worry, God never intended for Abraham to actually sacrifice his son Isaac. And God provided a ram to sacrifice instead. What is the lesson here? The lesson is that faith in God isn't for the faint of heart. It's not for the unconvinced. Because true faith requires radical obedience. True faith in God, life-changing faith, requires radical obedience. Let's look at the second example, starting in verse 24. It says this, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You can underline that one. James driving the same point home. Then in verse 25, he says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So example number two of a living faith, Rahab, a prostitute, a member of the enemy nation of of Israel at the time helps the spies that Israel sent into the country. And she did that at risk of her own life and the life of her family. But she sneaks the spies out of the city and then she sends her own people in a different direction to ensure that they're going to be able to escape because she was so convinced that their God was real. She didn't just think about God. She didn't just get emotionally excited about God. She responded to God's invitation to join his family and to help his mission. And coincidentally, Rahab became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Something like that. Pretty awesome. What's the lesson? True faith responds to God's invitations. True faith responds to God's invitations. Many of you know this to be true, and here's why you know it to be true, because at some point in your life, God spoke to you about something big, and it may have been the day when you trusted your life to Christ, it may have been in some other way, God spoke to you about something that was big for you, and you chose to step out and obey God. You trusted God with some area of your life that you had never trusted him with before, and you took action, you put your feet to your faith, 
and you experienced life change, and there's a great chance that other people experience life change because of your life change and your obedience to God, God's invitation as well. Let me give you a quick example of how this is even true for us as a church family. Five years ago, five years ago, we started to do research on how we could be more effective at reaching our community. Five years ago, we looked at other churches all around the country that were doing a great job at reaching out to their community and and ministering to people. Because as you can notice, our culture is changing. Not as many people will walk into a church on Sunday morning as once did. That's not the main way people are entering church anymore is through just coming and visiting your services. Christians do that. Non-Christians don't generally. So we started to look at churches that were reaching people and helping meet needs in their community. And through that, bridging a relationship with Christ. Because like Jesus did, we meet a need in love. And it serves as a bridge to meet their spiritual need as well. In all the research we did, I mean, we saw unbelievable stuff that God's doing. We saw people starting businesses in and through the church and partnerships and the way that people were reaching in and serving the community. But you know what we didn't see anywhere? We never saw a dog park. <laughs> Just never saw it. I never saw a church anywhere in the country. It's, hey, partner with your township and do a dog park. It's just an amazing thing. Never saw it. But this is just one way that God opened the door. A couple years ago, seeds started to be planted. There was interest. And we just opened our hands and said, God, is this an invitation? Is this an invitation to be a part of your work? And God said, yes. And so we just kept opening the door. And the relationship that has been established with our township, the relationship that has been established with our community, the relationship with a woman who came in the other night when we were having a meeting here, and loudly declared, I said I would never walk into a church again, and here I am because I care about dogs and want to be at this meeting, and here I am back in a church. And to watch the way that God softened her heart as people introduced themselves and as members of of Daybreak got to know her and came around her and and then her even exclaiming, "I, I could be a part of a church. Let's go back to James' question. What is the kind of faith that saves you? I think we're seeing it pretty clearly. Life-changing faith seeks not only to know about God, but to know God and to respond to his invitations. And if I could sum up the Christian life for you, which I think we all make way too complicated, to be honest, I would say this. Listen for God's invitations to love him and to love others and respond in obedience. Listen to God's invitations for you to be in a love relationship with him and for him to invite you to love others and respond in obedience. How do we know what God's invitations to us are? Well, they come through his word. God is probably speaking to you this morning. He's probably inviting you into some next steps of obedience with him, even through James' words of wisdom to us this morning. We also know through God's spirit's promptings to us through prayer, and that can come at any time. God's spirit can prompt you. Say, I want you to take this step. It's time to stand on a chair. And when we do that, when we respond to God's heart, we do it as his loved sons and daughters who want to carry out our Father's love into this love-starved world, and it's transformational. And yes, that level of obedience will seem risky, and that's why it's called faith, okay? It was risky for Abraham. It was risky for for, um, Rahab. It's going to feel a little risky for you to step on a chair, but it'll demonstrate that you believe. Maybe some of you watched the MTV Movie Awards at the beginning of this week. I didn't, uh, but what I saw afterwards um, that 
was all over uh, social media this week and other places, uh, were the words of an actor, Chris Pratt. And we're not going to show you the whole clip because he said a lot of stuff in there. Uh, But he kept coming back to his faith. And I want you to watch in a risky environment how a guy, I believe, responded to God's invitations. Let's watch together. Let's talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Whether he's playing Andy, Star-Lord, or just being himself, this guy is seriously hard not to like. God is real. God loves you. God wants the best for you. Believe that. I do. If you're strong, be a protector, and if you're smart, be a humble influencer. Strength and intelligence can be weapons, and do not wield them against the weak. You have a soul. Be careful with it. Doesn't matter what it is, earn it. Learn to pray. It's easy, and it's so good for your soul. And finally, nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be, but there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. And like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, do not forget it. Don't take it for granted. Now listen, I don't know Chris Pratt. I think he's a funny actor. But I got to believe that a guy who will get up on, on a global stage with the platform that he's been given and lift people's chins in order to point them towards the true and, and living God, I believe that he believes what he's saying and that his life has truly been changed by that grace that he talked about. And I hope that in his everyday life, he demonstrates what he believes. I hope that he does. Yes, that level of obedience will seem risky, and that is why it's called faith. But remember the chair. Remember the chair. We just need to take that step and entrust ourselves to God. So we return to this James challenge, this question to us as believers, as people of faith. Does your life demonstrate what you believe? Will you bow your heads with me? Faith that demonstrates your belief and your trust in God is the kind of faith that will change you. That's the kind of faith that will change the world around you. Faith in the living Christ that motivates radical obedience in our life brings transformation to your life and to mine. I believe that there are some of you here this morning who need to put your trust in Christ today. You need to take a step of faith and respond to God's invitation to you to stand on a chair and to put your faith and trust in him. And if that's you this morning, you might want to pray a prayer like this and say, uh, Jesus, I do trust you. And I'm, I might be a little fearful of what's to come, but today I, I take a step of faith. I thank you that you willingly gave up your life for me. You shed your blood for me so that my sins could be forgiven. And God, today I ask you, would you lead my life? I trust you to lead my life. I've not been doing a good job of it on my own. So Lord Jesus, I put you in charge today. 
I put my hope and my confidence and my trust in you. Lead me on, Jesus. Thank you. For others of you this morning, maybe God is inviting you to put your faith into action. And you need to pray a prayer like this. Father God, my faith has been dead. My life doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't look loving. My faith can be fearful and timid. And God, I want to obey you with a radical obedience. No matter what the risk, I trust you. Would you help me today to take these steps of faith? Help me to take these steps of faith. Amen.